Welcome to Act in Line, the podcast of the Acton Institute for the Study of Religion and Liberty. I'm Caroline Roberts, producer and also an occasional host. In this episode, we'll first be discussing the last season of Game of Thrones, covering both positive and negative aspects of the show, as well as its themes of tyranny and power, as the eight-year-long show wrapped up this past Sunday. Afterwards, I speak with Lee Ma, who's a senior fellow at the Henry Institute, to talk about her book, The Chinese Exodus, covering how an accelerated capitalist economy combined with remnants of communism took off in the 20th century in China, causing mass migration and poverty. If you want to read more about the topics in this episode, you can find our show notes at blog.actin.org, where I post all reading materials and also event registration every Wednesday when our episodes release. And as always, if you like this podcast, don't forget to leave us a rating and review on iTunes. Thanks for joining us on this episode of Act in Line. My name is Jordan Baller. I'm a senior research fellow here at the Acton Institute. And uh, joining me for this conversation is Tyler Grunendahl, who works in our Advancement and Development Office. And we're talking about Game of Thrones, the cultural phenomenon of the moment anyway and of the last eight plus seasons of the television show um tyler i mean what can we say in general about this show uh we should perhaps start with a bit of a a caveat or proviso there are going to be spoilers if you haven't caught the the (laughs) the series finale but also more generally about the show itself it's controversial for a number of reasons yeah certainly i mean i don't think anyone can object to that there is a lot of salaciousness to it, gratuitous sexual content, gratuitous violence. And I think that's part of what the show's appeal is to like a common audience. But I think there's a lot more deeper themes within that that come from the series of books it comes from, A Song of Ice and Fire by George R. R. Martin. Right. I think there's a lot of ruminations about like a modern adaptation of a traditional fantasy epic. Some might say postmodern, but there's a lot of ruminations on power, mm-hmm. the nature of the individual, nature of prophecy. I mean, there's all sorts of grand overarching themes that are in the show, independent of whatever the gratuitous content that people might right. know more for. Yeah. So the question, I mean, you use the language of gratuity there. I wonder, um, I mean, think, I- I've read the books first, like I think many people who are fans mm-hmm. of the series at least have done. And I actually didn't watch much of the show for some of the reasons that you just talked about. I mean, it it didn't seem to capture the depth of the books. Um, it deviated in many ways, ways that seemed, at least at the time, you know, arbitrary or capricious. Mm-hmm. Um, and this last season, I mean, one of the features about, so I have watched the show. One of the, this, one of the features of it, though, is that the sexual elements of it, at least, uh, basically disappeared by the end of the season. I mean, mm-hmm. you get a little bit in the very first episode, and then um, there's graphic violence still. And I don't know if that's, I mean, it's, it's gratuitous in some sense, but it's not gratuitous in other because it's really integral to the story. Absolutely. But it, but the sex dropping out of it, basically, it's like almost a lure to get people to watch. And then by the time you're getting to serious substantive storytelling or along the themes of what you're just discussing, you don't need it anymore. It's dispensable. So in that sense, I do think the sexuality and the, um, the hyper, uh, hypersexual element uh, of the show is, is gratuitous and dispensable in a way that perhaps the violence isn't. So maybe we can talk about – the role of violence and uh, politics and things like that, too. Yeah, absolutely. And if we want to jump right to the finale, I think the whole final season is fundamentally a tale of power, a pursuit of political power, pursuit of the state power. And a lot of that is exemplified in the character of Daenerys. Uh, The second to last episode, episode five, 
she comes and raises King Landing on the dragon. Mm-hmm. And in the past, she'd been perceived as like she's a pivotal character. You're meant to associate with her. But the overarching theme of her, she's always pursuing power. She feels it's her destiny to take the Iron Throne because her father was deposed when he was the king. Her whole arc is one of pursuit of political power. And not just in Westeros. When she was in Essos, she wanted to kill all the slavers and free all the slaves and burn down all the cities of the people she opposed, all in pursuit of a power. What I really think is interesting is in this last episode, she talks about her justification for it. She sees herself as fundamentally good. She sees what she's doing and her ends as justified. So the ends are justifying the means to which she does it. She wants to go on. She wants to conquer more, burn down more cities, take control of more. (laughs) Yeah, she uses the language of liberation. So there's an interesting dynamic with Daenerys about liberation and power. Mm -hmm. And it's very clear she uses terminology like the wheel, the wheel that's crushing the oppressed underneath it, that she's going to not just – uh, you know, this is the rhetoric anyway, the way she th- – and I think it's not just outward facing, but she, this is what she believes too. Mm-hmm. And sometimes – in some ways, she can, she's convincing herself and stealing herself to have to do these things that are necessary. Mm-hmm. Um, she's going to destroy this wheel and create a new world order that's going to be just and it's going to be good. And there's a critical scene in the, in the finale where her and John are speaking and he is, you know, emo as he is always and mm-hmm. – and, Oh, I have doubts about what's good, what's right, or the wrong thing to do in this situation. And she basically says, "We know what's right," mm-hmm. appealing to some inner revelation or conscience or whatever, or that might makes right, perhaps, mm-hmm. uh, is definitely part of it. And um, you know, appealing to this this shared sensibility of the good that they they seem that she at least thinks they share. Sure. Um, and he says, well, what about all those other people <laughs> who don't agree with us? And she says, they don't get to choose. Yeah. So this is a critical po- – this is a, always a critical question for, for – uh, a, a critical kind of delineating question for, for matters of political economy. Who decides? Mm-hmm. Well, it's very clear in Daenerys' Dan- worldview. It's her basically, mm-hmm. that decides. She becomes the arbiter of what's right and wrong. And it's whatever motivates her, whatever um, destiny she feels is calling her, all of the formation of her history and so on. But it's, it's you know, and she's got some evidence for it, as, as uh, Tyrion points out in one of the earlier episodes. I mean, if anybody is going to think they've got a destiny, it's going to be somebody who's walked out of a fire with three dragons that mm-hmm. command, you know, follow your <laughs> commands, right? So yeah. she's got some some empirical grounding for it, perhaps. But what is the cost of this pursuit? Um, you know, what are the consequences of Daenerys's pursuit of, yeah, power? But I mean, power from within her own understanding. She she wants to liberate people and liberate them good and hard. You could say, right? <laughs> I mean, this is to, to pick up on Mencken's quote: "Democracy is 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 this idea of people getting what they want, good and hard." This is what's what what the reality of power politics is in yeah. Game of Thrones. I think it's interesting because when you look at her earlier history, I mean, they were slaves. She was freeing slaves. That did happen. But the people in a Westerosi feudal society, regardless of how you feel about the conditions of the peasantry and the small folk, they weren't in the same manner of like chattel slavery as is on Essos. Right. And she's conflating the two to be all one thing. And you and I talked about this a little. I see it as sort of a utopian inclination. Mm-hmm. You can find it in various strains of revolutionary thought, like the French Revolution or the Communist Revolution. This idea that you have to collapse the old power structures, regardless of what they are, like in a Marxist sense, all employers are exploiters of labor. They're all evil. They all have to go. Right. Whereas 
you know, it's not the same thing as slavery, but they equate the two things. I saw a lot of parallels in that in Daenerys. Yes. And I mean, I, I think that's the way we're supposed to understand it, right? I mean, she doesn't have to in any strong sense. Certainly Jon Snow doesn't see why and Tyrion don't see why she does what she does with King's Landing. Mm-hmm. But there's a sense in which sitting atop her dragon, looking out over this old order of things, she realizes the right thing to do is to burn it all mm-hmm. because it's out of those ashes. It's out of that fire, that refining fire perhaps, but also very much destroying that this new order is going to arise of with her at the pinnacle and the top. Um, there's a quote about – I mean obviously we haven't said the word yet I don't think. But I mean <laughs> we're supposed to understand Daenerys as a tyrant, yeah. right? Her whole rhetoric is about overthrowing the masters and the tyrants and the people who – like Cersei Lannister. Obviously she's the, 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 the final foe in terms of, of Daenerys's conquering exploits. There's a quote that's been uh, circulating already just in the 24 hours or so after the show uh, related to C.S. Lewis and his understanding of – forms of tyranny and it's the tyrant who has a kind of a moral self-understanding that there it's a it's a it's a tyrant who's going to do what's best for you. Yeah, uh, it's a tyranny sincerely exercised for the good of its victims. Yeah. He goes on to say it may be the most oppressive cuz there's never going to stop cuz mm-hmm. there's always something to to improve, right? They always feel justified in whatever yeah. they do because it is for the good or they perceive it to be for Whereas the good. Cersei, I mean this would be a good juxtaposition. Cersei might be satiated at some point, right? Like mm-hmm. She actually has a, a child who lives long enough to, <laughs> to you know, presumably accede to the throne in due time or whatever. Somebody who just wants whatever they're going to get to loot, to, they're going to be they, – they potentially could be satiated. Whereas somebody who's a moral reformer in the sense that Dar- Daenerys seems to be is never going to be happy. And we see that in this pivotal last fi- final episode, right, the turn where – it, King's Landing isn't enough. The Iron Throne, which she's basically gotten at this point, is not enough. Westeros mm-hmm. is not enough. It's going to be what? The whole world. So it's permanent revolution, permanent war, and permanent total war, really. I mean, if you look mm-hmm. at the way she executes the campaign against King's Landing in the episode before that. And even after she finishes that, the, like, the, the story opens with her executing more like prisoners of war. Right. They've already thrown out of swords. They already lost. The city's burned. But they still have to die because they're on the wrong side. So this is the dynamic that really pushes the series throughout. And, and looking back, you can see it. There's certainly clues and hints of where what Daenerys' character is. Mm-hmm. She certainly has noble traits. I mean, people love her. People do follow her. Sir Bronn of the Blackwater said at one point, once he saw those dragons, he knew that King, you know Cersei was going to die and King's Landing was going to fall because she's got the ultimate weapons and they basically are unbeatable. Mm-hmm. Even if 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 there uh, there are some flaws in her her tactics and her 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 thinking about the threats, she tends to be overconfident. But Jon Snow, uh, for various reasons. <sighs> Still sees her as his queen, but no longer as his lover after they have this this romance. And she, when he spurns her, uh, I think for the second time, mm-hmm. you only get maybe three chances when you spurn somebody <laughs> that powerful. But for the second time, she says basically, you know, people have to love you or fear you to follow you. Mm-hmm. Um, and when he says, I can't love you in that way, she says, let it be fear then. Which made me think of, uh, we're going to talk a little, you know, the Lewis quote we mentioned earlier, I think is apropos, but there's some insights from the namesake here at the Acton Institute, I think that we should bring to bear too. And one of these is a quote from Lord Acton where he says, you may govern by force, but you cannot at the same time hold by both physical and moral means. And this is the central insight that Daenerys has in that moment, right? You, it'd be, it's better for people to love you, but if they can't love you, and they see her as this outside conqueror, this empress coming in to impose 
freedom on them, <laughs> good and hard, you could say. Um, then they're, she's gonna have, they're going to have to fear her, and she's going to do whatever it takes to make them. And there's good reason by the time we get to this last episode of the show to fear her. Absolutely. Uh, the people who have supported her realize what the situation they're in. You're back with a Targaryen on the throne with a full, fully grown dragon, and the, you've defeated the one danger of ice, and now you've got the other danger of fire in, a, in the p- position of power. Mm-hmm. So this is really what the season, the series finale is about. What do you do in this kind of a situation? And this is Jon Snow's central di- uh, dilemma. Absolutely. And I think his conversation with Tyrion Lannister in one of the early scenes of the episode, they talk about the relationship between love and duty. Mm-hmm. One says love is the death of duty. The other says duty is the death of love. So it's really him choosing between his duty and his love because he loves Daenerys. He wants to do right by her. But I think he feels somewhat similar to Daenerys. I think he's always felt obligated to operate based on what is good. Mm-hmm. Like he's driven by justice. He wants to do the right thing. And he sort of comes to the conclusion that the right thing is to remove the threat of this tyranny. And he's sort of conflicting with his own love and his own feelings and the fact that he's pledged himself and his honor to this cause, but seeing how radically just opposed to its own ends it's become. Right. And the threat it represents going forward. Absolutely. So let's t- let's talk a little bit about this, this decision that uh, with some prompting that Tyrion gives to Jon Snow that Jon Snow decides to – that the course of action he, he he embarks on. You know, one of the marks of tyranny, I think both for Lewis as well as for Lord Acton, was that tyrants and these these great heroes or, or at least important figures from history felt themselves somehow above the moral order. Mm-hmm. That is, they had, they had some kind of super calling, supernatural calling or super erogatory calling or something like that. And, you know, love God and love your neighbor may be fine rules for the little folk. <laughs> but when you've got really important things to do, like freeing every freeing the world, you can't be bound by the strictures that would apply to lesser people. And so this feeling of superiority that somehow you're a superman beyond the, uh, the, the restraints of the moral order is at the heart of tyranny. And I know you've got a quote there, I think, from Lord Acton. I do. And I think this is the most famous quote. This is quote everyone knows by Lord Acton. Power tends to corrupt and absolute power corrupts absolutely. The next sentence people always leave out, but I think it's just as good. Great men are almost always bad men. And I think great in the sense of like larger than life, if they see themselves in this mold that the moral norm doesn't apply to them, that they have a supernatural destiny that extends beyond what everyone else has to deal with. Right. So I think if you look at early Daenerys, like early in the books or early in the show, it is sympathetic. She is basically a slave and she gradually comes to her own and attains some power. And I think it's when she starts getting power that things really start going downhill for her. Right. When the dragons get more grown and when she gets an army, that's when the viciousness and the fire and blood starts to come out. I think it's, it's – It becomes visceral in a way for her. You can see – I think Amelia Clark does a fine job acting as, as does Phenomenal Snow. job I acting. mean they both – are convincing, especially in these last couple of episodes, of what they feel like they need to do. And there's, it's. I think even for da- for Daenerys, she really these are hard things that she has to do. These hard decisions, not granting a reprieve to Tyrion. Mm-hmm. I don't think it's easy for her. I, in that, I mean, I, I'm convinced that uh, these are difficult decisions she has to make with Varys in the episode before. But she's such a person, in a sense devoted her to the truth of her own calling, that she's willing to make those personal sacrifices. Mm-hmm. She refers to them as little mercies at one point. Right? Yeah. The world is not going to be saved by little mercies, she says. And one of the things that made me think about is, is um, 
an important dynamic and background for understanding what's going on in Martin's epic here is Tolkien mm-hmm. and the Lord of the Rings. Absolutely. And this, so it's a background. It's his sort of answer to mm-hmm. it, right? It's it's grittier. It's harder. The light and dark is not so easily – the right and the wrong is not so easily distinguished as it is arguably in, in Tolkien's moral universe. Yeah, Martin, objectively, he wants more gray. He doesn't want Absolutely, it to be right. just goodies and baddies. Um, and, you know, whereas one of the lessons you could take from the Lord of the Rings e- epic is it actually is the everyday acts of justice and kindness that sustain the world. Mm-hmm. That's – for Daenerys, that's not enough. You have to have some great power. And so if it's the ring or it's the Iron Throne or it's um, Mount Doom or it's the dragon, (laughs) you know, the melting of the throne, obviously, in the final episode is very indicative that way. You do see see alternate visions of these moral universes at play. Related to that, too, we could talk a little bit about what what the, the kind of end equilibrium is, if there is an equilibrium at the end of the show. Sure. And how we get there. So um, John <laughs> does what he feels his duty is. And I think we could have an interesting discussion about the morality of what John does, of course. Mm-hmm. But he's willing to take on the responsibility of whatever the moral costs and and uh, penal costs of this act are going to be. Yeah. And then the, the lords and ladies of Westeros have a practical political decision, a dilemma in front of them. What do we do now? We don't, we don't have a leader. Uh, everyone with claims has basically been eliminated. There are... A bunch of other people that don't, you know, may have other kinds of claims. So there's a kind of a, a conclave or a conference about mm-hmm. what to do a next. Council a council, yeah, absolutely. And I think it's interesting because a lot of people would look at that in a modern sensibility and think the conclusion is just get rid of the monarchy, right? Just get rid of the existing power structure, sort of in the same way as Daenerys, but in a more light way. And he, and that's even what Tyrion says at one point, right? This this lineal genealogical descent of rule is the wheel. That Daenerys was trying to destroy, yes. at least at one point in her mm-hmm. understanding of the wheel. Maybe her conception of the wheel gets more comprehensive. It's a larger wheel that you put over the old wheel. But that's where we end, right? Mm-hmm. Th- that wheel has been destroyed. Yes. But the answer is not a radical de- democratic view either in that modern sense. No, and one of the characters, Samuel Tarley, suggests that and all the lords laugh him out of <laughs> right. the room. That's one of the fo- forced moments of comic relief there is, uh, is in that scene where – Sansa's uncle stands up to put himself yeah. forward too and campaign a little bit. That's a little modern too. Maybe you, it's not the kind of thing you campaign for. <laughs> right. You, you kind of get it thrust upon you. Like right. it's, it's a known thing. But I, I really like that known. ending. Yes. Because it wasn't um, – you know, you and I talked in the past about what if the seven kingdoms go back to just being seven independent kingdoms – which the North does do. The North does become its own. Yeah, so it becomes the, – the empire becomes six kingdoms and, and the North uh, through its own exploits and claims ends up becoming an independent kingdom. They use that language, an independent yeah. kingdom. I do like that because it wasn't like a full – it was a gradual shift, sort of like in a Burkean, Hayekian sense of right. social and political and institutional change. It's not a radical overhaul like Daenerys and a French revolutionary might advocate, but it was a shift. Yeah. Rather than having a hereditary monarch, you have an elected monarch and they're non-hereditary. And there's like a conclave or a council to elect it. I don't know. I liked that it wasn't radical. So there's still a monarchy, but it's constrained in some ways. It's, you could say uh, it's an unwritten it's constitution not, of sorts. Yes, absolutely. It's not an absolute monarchy in the way that Daenerys certainly would have seemed to want to impose mm-hmm. uh, the Targaryen rule again. So, yeah, that seems where we end up is with something in between – an absolute dem- democracy and an absolute uh, monarchical kind of a the mixed form mi- a mixed form of government which yeah i mean it's the best you can do in a kind of a fallen world i guess mm-hmm. so any final thoughts on the significance of the series the the 
predictions about you know what you, what you might there's going to be franchises and you know who, who knows how successful some of those those will be there's been a lot of controversy about this final season maybe that's uh, sapped some of the enthusiasm around the show Perhaps. will martin finish any more books what do you look what i mean <laughs> i know not, you've thought a lot about this tyler so i'm, I'm not very optimistic i think there's um there's a chance he'll finish the next book but it's sort of the the success of the series is also part of it's like its own flaws are hidden in that it's this grand scaling epic with hundreds of characters and it goes across two continents and to tie all that together in like a cohesive narrative that still makes sense about what your characters are doing, what all those parts fit together as, it's enormously complicated. And I think a lot of people's dissatisfaction with the final season are rooted in the fact they didn't have all these pieces going together like you mm-hmm. see in the books. Right. They had the end point that they knew they had to get to, but you didn't have all the We were a little rushed in terms I think of it was getting very there. Rushed. Yeah, and a lot of the nuance and the depth that makes the books so powerful is is it just was not able to translate, if not because of the medium, at least because of the timing and, and so on. If you look at the earlier series where it more closely tracked with the books, I think it had more mm-hmm. impact, mm-hmm. more of those themes in line with it. And I was frankly a little dissatisfied with some of the later seasons, but it the ending turned me around because I think this is Martin's ending. We didn't see all the steps that we needed to take to get there. Right. But I think the core of it, John goes north, Sansa rules, Arya leaves, Daenerys is dead, all of that. I think that's his ending. It is a phenomenon that we have to grapple with, I think. I mean, even the dissatisfactions illustrate something about it. Uh, I think over a million people have signed a petition to, to redo the entire yeah, final season. I saw that. Um, so even if there's a negative uh, or at least a slice of the cr- of criticism among some of the audience about the way the show ended up, it says something in this kind of fractured, dissolute uh, cultural moment that – it's achieved such a kind of a cultural significance that so many people are, have, have watched it, have read the books, are invested in it, and so on. That by itself means that it's something that's significant in that, in that sense. And I guess, yeah, my, my final point would be I owe this, to, uh, this insight to, to a friend of mine that we've had some conversations about the show too is it's a lot easier to criticize than it is to create. Absolutely. You know? And there's a sense of entitlement I think people get – about where they want something to go or how they want it to get there and so on. And we started by talking about gratuitousness in, in a kind of a negative sense, but there's a, there's a kind of an ingratitude too to, you know, somebody like Martin or, uh, or the showrunners. I mean, they've put, they've put a lot of work into this. Um, I'm sure they're happy to stand behind it. Maybe the actors are kind of disappointed because they're characters, but that's the life of an actor. Yeah. Uh, but, I, you know, for people who appreciated the show, got some enjoyment out of it, and probably, I mean, maybe learned some things uh, about the role of religion, the role of love, the attachments that people have, the, set, the, the significance of duty and loyalty, even in the face of, of injustice and power. The and, nature of the state. And the yeah. All the, I mean, it, it's a kind of a micro, uh, a, nar- a narrative way of getting into to comparative political economy and things, these <laughs> kinds of questions. Yeah. So, um we should have a kind of a posture of gratitude, I think, overall, and appreciate living in a moment where the technological ability is there to appreciate something like this, but the, the God-given creativity to these people to be able to think of um, stories like this. And this is another thing that comes up in the final season, the significance of stories. And that's almost a reflection back on what's going on. It's a meta I think, in Absolutely. Well, great, Tyler. Thanks for joining us on this episode of Act in Line, and um, we'll look forward to uh, more conversations down the line. Every year in June, Acton University brings together nearly 1,000 people in Grand Rapids, Michigan to explore the foundations of a free society. 
And this year, we're excited to be opening registration for each evening's dinner and plenary session for those who can't attend the full conference. Join us on the evening of June 18 to hear Mary Ann Kalam, a politician in Estonia, speak firsthand about her witness of Soviet-occupied Estonia and her work to champion freedom after the fall of the Iron Curtain. Save your spot at this event before seats fill up and register at acton.org slash events. Today, I have the pleasure of speaking with Lee Ma. She is a senior research fellow at the Henry Institute for the Study of Christianity and Politics. She has written numerous articles and books on religion, social change, Chinese thought, and various other topics. And today we're talking about her new book, The Chinese Exodus, which is a look into migration, urbanism, and alienation in contemporary China. Uh, Lee, thank you so much for being with me today. Thank you, Carolyn. So uh, first, I want to just have you explain for us a little bit of the an overview of the book, kind of give us an elevator pitch, because I don't think I could <laughs> succinctly combine all the issues and ideas in this book as well as you could. So just give us a summary. What is this book about? Yes, the book is um, um, historical and theological uh, review and wrestling with how mass migration, especially um, rural to urban migration, happened in China and what the implications are for um, today's China, as China is becoming more urbanized. And um, especially we're seeing a, a very um, fast-growing wealth gap among different classes. And so this book really uh, tells how this happened and what this meant, especially for uh, Christian ministry too, and and how do or how do we understand poverty in a time of urbanization, globalization, specifically for China as a country that has transitioned out of a, a Soviet type of central planning system. Now you say that you were in China in 2007 doing your research for your dissertation. Yeah, from 2006 two, seven, okay, and okay. eight, actually. So was this project, was the idea for this book, was it born um, before you went over there or was it born out of your research there? I guess, how was this project born about? What made you go after the ideas in this book? Right. The idea really was born in me um, uh, from my personal experiences because my family and I myself, I grew up in rural areas, um, with with my family, and we moved a lot, and a lot of, of relocation, and and then we settled in cities, small cities, big cities, and I saw the cities grow, and then I saw how urban life affected people's you know lifestyle and thinking, and and then um, so urban change, um, urbanization, and social change has been almost like one thread in my life. And um, I would, if I were to pick one topic to write for my dissertation uh, on China's social change, I uh, obviously I had to choose this. You had to write about the um, wealth gap and the changes that happened with this massive migration. Um, one of the lines, especially that I liked in your book, it was in the first couple pages. You say, quote, just like ancient Hebrew slaves in Egypt, Rural migrants comprise the backbone of China's working force and economic boom. And like slaves, they are also the acquiescent underclass. And this is an interesting part. You say suffering from both cruel market forces and the whims of communist policy makers. 
When you refer to, uh, quote, cruel market forces here, what do you mean by that? What are you referring to? What kind of market forces are there right now in China that are being combined with communism, with the remnants of communism, at least? Um, So China's transition out of a centrally planned economy has kind of deepened into um, other sectors, sectors other than uh, just a a service sector or agricultural sector, but also manufacturing sector and all other areas. So the economy opened up for for, for um, more residential mobility and transnational corporations entering into China. You know, you re- they relied on cheap labor. These economic forces really happened from the 90s to the early 2000s until now. And then these migrants actually may, are making up more than two-thirds of the working force. Um, they are the backbone of the economy, Chinese economy, but they're invisible. Uh, I've done this research in the past, like, over a decade, but now um, I think the plight of this population is receiving more attention from media, both in, in China and here. The story of economic costs has to do with China's integration into the world economy and it's becoming... Uh, the world's biggest manufacturing center. Mm -hmm. So in a way, it's the accelerated capitalism combined with still a a class-based system, in a way. Would you say that? Yes, yes. We know that the transition of post-communist societies, some went through like a more abrupt change, but China has always uh, followed a gradual, what they call a gradualist reform. What that means, a gradualist reform only got rid of some of the structures, but maintain some other controls. So that created opportunities for people to integrate into urban life and economy, especially the private economic sector. But 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 then um, part of the control still kind of dragged them because they still, their identities are locked in the socialist system. I think the first chapter is really important when we begin to understand how integrated into Chinese life class-based yes. system was. The first chapter is called The Regime and the Underclass. And you say that the class-based system is a system in which social status was invented and by which a sense of unworthiness was attached to those excluded. Can you dive in a little bit? What exactly does the class-based system look like practically? Uh, what, I guess, what are the class structures there? How, in the, how does that play out in everyday life? Right. So every uh, Chinese citizen has, um, every family has a booklet that's called Huko registration, household registration. On there, you will be labeled either as agricultural or non-agricultural. The two categories uh, set people on different tracks for life's circumstances. For those who are non-agricultural, they're able to enter in jobs that just you have like a broader choice, broader spectrum of uh, job choices. But for the agricultural uh, category, people can only um, stay uh, in rural areas. If they were to migrate, they ha- they can take up jobs. But also along, even within each category, uh, where you came from, your local Huko origin location matters a lot. So, for example, for the non-agricultural category, 
It matters whether your hukou registration is in Shanghai, Beijing, Guangzhou, or other small cities. Because if you if you're a local in those big cities, your chances are much higher. Your benefits are much higher. Your welfare, everything you get to your kids can go to local schools without paying extra fees. But if not, you're considered as an outsider. You have to pay an extra fee to that. So every almost in in the area of um, employment, education, housing, welfare,、uh, medical care, everything is related to this category. So when we see that those people are moving towards the cities for jobs. The people who are holding cards,、right. only permitting them to work in agricultural kinds of jobs, they're the ones being mostly employed in low-pay,、yes. abusive factory conditions. Correct? Yes, mostly、okay. factories, and then an informal economy in the service sector. Yeah. So, what does everyday life look like for that kind of person?、Uh, if one or more members of that family are being forced to work in a factory, long hours, what what does that life look like? Married people, they cannot stay together. They have their each factories to go in. Sometimes these factories work just very long hours. They provide dorms for people to stay, but not for married. Usually, people separate. Or if they want to stay together, they have to rent an apartment. If they were to choose work like odd jobs, they could bring their children. But then the children can go to local schools because they don't have the household registration for them to be qualified to go to the schools. So,、uh, starting from the mid '90s, there are many migrant schools. First started as like very in a in a hut or just very、uh, substandard conditions. There's always a trend in the local for the local government to tear down the schools and close them down, and then. After that, they kind of mushroom again. They changed to another location and came out again. So this、uh, kind of、uh, fluctuation in policy. Many、uh, children, even inside their own country, they can't go to public schools. You know, alienation is a big word that you use throughout the book. I think it's a key word, and you even say toward the end of the book that it's the core. Problem. In what ways does alienation play throughout these facets?、Um, there has been many articles and、um, in the media or books written about migration, but I have not、uh, not been satisfied with their approach because、um, I I, I want to present urbanization and、um, this urban poverty issue as an eschatological trend. I wanted to extend Augustine's. Theology of、um, alienation and migration to challenge us to think about how we can do good in a、uh, in a time of structural evils. Augustine emphasized also emphasized the social aspect of justice, bringing this concept to modern time, especially in this global urbanism, a time of global urbanism. Urbanization and globalization have created. Almost like dual processes of development and decadence at the same time. So, if we take just a materialistic approach, we will see flourishing, you know, what appears to the eyes. But if you look inside, the the decay of the human city is a global phenomena. And、um, how do we see hope behind beyond this? Well, that is a perfect. Segue into my next topic of conversation because I really do want to touch on how you ground all of these issues, all of the specifics that you're talking about, alienation, 
urbanization, poverty, migration in China, you ground them all in theology and an understanding of who the human person is. Um, and there's so much to distill in this book, and unfortunately we can't do it all here. But I do want to touch on the fact you say, quote, migration is never separate from contemporary forms of human suffering. And in this sense, migration deserves not just sociological attention, but also theological reflection. And you go on to say that our understanding of sin in an age of global capitalism is assisted by a type of technological tyranny um, and that it's incomplete. We can't understand all of this without an adequate examination of social and institutional sins. So what what does approaching all of this look like? How are the people in China responding? Do we see NGOs rising up to respond to this alienation, this migration? How how is how are people responding in China? Yes, there has been a wave of um, NGOs and also faith-based NGOs, although they can state that outright, but there there has been, but then the government's crackdown on it has been periodic too. So there's a lot of advocacy that has to be done. And NGOs, we mean non-governmental organizations. Yes. But in this case, it's it's almost oxymoronic to say that, unfortunately, in China, because they are so regulated by the government. They're, I mean, they're practically another arm of government. <laughs> yes. As you can see from one chapter, I've interviewed an array of uh, NGOs, and some of them, they face their own survival um a crisis. And some of them, in order to just survive in China's political environment, they had to be co-opted by the government and become what they call gongos, government NGOs, which is even more <laughs> oxymoron. But right now, there are more, there are a lot of gongos existing in China that have been, you know, first they started as budding, um, very independent NGO efforts, and then they got um, co-opted into the system because the government doesn't want that to that independent part to grow. Well, the government, they want to alleviate the poverty problem, too, just because how massive the problem is. So they can't comprehend how um, the role of NGOs has to be independent. That's core to their the, the essence of their action. But they always want to shuffle these NGOs into their own umbrella. And then these NGOs really lose touch with what the real problems are. So that creates more problems. Realistically, what can you see... What systemic kind of reform could you see happening in China? What would you like to see? How can the church in China best respond? It is a, a very depressing thing that uh, I have observed over the past almost 15 years. And I th I've, I've heard enough stories to have the hope that um, there are groups, Christian groups that are not known to the outside world that are doing things, just serving their neighbors, being good neighbors and practicing uh, genuine and sustained hospitality and community building. I think community building is like almost inherent to human beings. Uh, we have to have community. So I have hope that there has been organic things from uh, that are renewing and helping and fixing these structure. Uh, uh, mistakes. What does the city mean? Do we just give up on the city? Well, it's it's a global reality, but then we are we we are aware of its downsides and its layers of impersonalization, 
and alienation. What do we hope for the city? But then I remember I read,、um, especially Jacques Ellul's works about the meaning of the city. I revisited that、uh, his works and points out the same to the same hope that the earthly city is not irrelevant in God's eternal plan. So it has we have to come to this almost eschatological、uh, vision in order to embrace that hope and know that God is at work. What we see are the building materials of、um, the city to come. Lee, thank you so much for coming in and joining me for this conversation. I really enjoyed talking with you. Thank you. Thank you for listening today. If you have any feedback about this podcast, I would love to hear it. Every week, our podcast team is working to bring you the best show, and we couldn't do it without you. Let me know what you think about this podcast and email me at actinline at actin dot org. This episode of Actinline is produced and edited by me, Caroline Roberts, with audio mixing by Doug Nagel.